Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and if you're inclined to jot down notes, um, you can pull out the sheet of paper in your bulletins, and that is for you to um, put down whatever the Spirit might be teaching you in this passage and in this time together. We are in a, in a very famous passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Originally, I thought we would get to those iconic verses in, in 8 and 9 this week, but I think, uh, in fact, we'll save them uh, for next time we're together because um, they're, they're very precious words and, and hopeful reminders, especially verse 10, which often gets omitted when we, when we um, talk about Ephesians 8 and 9. We rarely talk about verse 10, so I'm excited to take those as a clump. Um, but today we will then be covering uh, the second half of really a passage that's talking about our spiritual deadness and our uh, spiritual aliveness. So last time we were talking about how we were dead in sin and I hope having to take a real look at our own sin, the consequences of our, of our sin, the grief it has caused us, the grief it has caused others and taking it as something deadly serious is a reason that he uses the terms dead and trespasses and sin is that we need to see sin as something that is so desperate um, so um, tragic just as you would if you saw a dying man on the side of the road we have to look at our own sin in such a way even our own souls at times because if we don't see sin as deadly being forgiven of our sin seems barely meaningful. In other words, if we say, I'm a good person, people are generally good, then Jesus doesn't need to die. The, the rest of this passage and really the entire Bible is meaningless if the general truth is, I'm a good person and people are generally good. Now, I'm not overstating this. You cannot be a Christian and think that Jesus' death was a really nice but ultimately unnecessary sacrifice that God made. And that is what you do effectively if you diminish sin. We don't think of it that way, but if you take away the heinousness, the danger, the consequence of death of sin, you take away from what Jesus Christ did. But as with the first chapter of this letter, having painted a bleak, sad picture of our deadness and sin, Paul once again turns our attention to the hero of the Bible, the bright shining light of the gospel and the good news that brings hope to the lost. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward, towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, these are, these are words that are revolutionary, that are transformative, that, that are completely unexpected. I, I think most of you have probably experienced something like this, where, where you just knew something bad was about to happen. You could see the different factors converging, and you knew this was going to end in disaster. I was on the five going home, um, maybe even from, uh, from, from working in the office, and uh, I saw a car up ahead suddenly slowing down, and this other car just kind of out of the corner of my zipping 
zipping by. And I knew, like before it happened, you could already, your mind's already calculating the speed and the distance. They're going to they're gonna collide. And sure enough, they crashed together, these cars, and I had to you know, swerve out of the way. You anticipate in that moment the, the screeching brakes, the sound of metal and plastic crunching together. You know how it's going to turn out. And we should feel a little bit like that when we read verses 1 through 3. We should get a pit in our stomach. We should sense the inevitability of something terrible happening. Like, wait, God is holy, and my sin is truly evil and wicked. This is going to converge in disaster. It's inevitable. It must happen this way. This is physics. This is logic. This is a a proof. It must be this way. And that is when you get hit with, but God. These two words are as shocking as if I was watching that speeding car going towards this braking car, and if the car suddenly jumped over that other speeding car and landed safely in front of it. Just as shocking as that kind of imagery would be is those words, but God. That there is something different than what you expect that is about to happen. Just when you think you know how the story ends, how it should end for sinners, God steps in. If there is no God, then there's no story. There's no meaning behind all of our lives and everything that's happening. If there's no but in but God, then God, who is not obligated to intervene, he could just let sin run its course and destroy and ruin everything. But God did do something. He has a plan. We're going to today talk about a salvation map, M-A-P, salvation map. The motivation of salvation, the actions and activities of salvation, and the purpose of salvation. God's map of salvation. What is the motivation of our salvation? In one word, it is love being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, mercy is a product of the love. Mercy flows from love. And and typically the word mercy in the Bible, um, or actually in in the Greek culture of the time, the New Testament originally written in Greek, and so it had, these words had connotations and meanings outside of the Bible too. Generally, this word meant pity, towards those who are suffering misfortune or suffering because they don't deserve it. Now, it can't mean that necessarily since verses one through three are very clear that we do deserve the suffering and the consequences of our sin. But it's an interesting word to use then because why would you use mercy when it kind of implies that you, you don't deserve it, that pities this feeling that you feel bad that someone is going through this. Well, this is conveying then that God doesn't just feel wrath towards sinners. And verse 3 is very clear. It's we were by nature children of wrath. Well, whose wrath? Well, the wrath of God. Not just the wrath we have against each other, but the Bible is clear that, that God has wrath towards those who sin. And yet, simultaneously, he also feels mercy. He has pity on us because he also knows that sinners are trapped 
by their own behaviors and actions that they are also sinned against. So he has pity in that, in that, that sense of our helplessness about, and our inability to do anything about the situation that we're in, that we are also, um, <laughs> we're not just perpetrators of sin, we're also victims of our own sin. And so yes, he can be wrathful, righteously angry at sin and sinners, but he also simultaneously and, and somehow in, in perfect unity with his wrath, also mercy. Oh, those poor, poor sinners, those poor lost sheep. I'm not against fire and brimstone preaching, but we better preach it with some awareness that sinners are also sufferers. Sinners are also victims. They're the perpetrators and the victims. And God can relate to that. Not that he suffers from his own sins because God doesn't sin, but part of mercy is also having this sympathy of experience. Jesus Christ suffered the sins of others, and ultimately he bore the consequences of sin. So somehow this eternal God who is above and beyond all sin can't even look at sin. He is so holy and righteous, and yet at the same time the Son of God suffered under sin. He experienced temptation. He even somehow, he can't, I don't even know how to explain how, but he bore our sins on his body on the cross. And so God can have mercy and compassion even as someone who's suffered and endured the heinousness of sin himself. He truly has pity and mercy on sinners, even though he is also rightfully, righteously angry and must judge sinners. The text here says that God is rich in this mercy, like wealthy in this mercy. What a contrast to our own thoughts about what makes someone rich. When we imagine, so I, I grew up watching a fair amount of cartoons um, and I know the kids are here this morning, uh, so I don't, but I don't know if they're familiar with this cartoon, but there was a character called Scrooge McDuck, and his thing was that he had this gigantic vault, like a gigantic room of coins and treasure and money, and he would swim in it, right? And whenever, <laughs> whenever I think of like having lots of wealth and riches, I kind of think of that picture. Well, well, God is, and so whenever I see it in the Bible, it's hard not to imagine, like, that is richness. When you can just swim in it, it's so abundant that you treat it like water. That must be truly, fabulously rich. Well, what God is rich in is not any possessions and any things of this world. If you want to rethink what wealth is, consider this, that what God considers valuable what God considers something to be rich in is mercy. This is something that we ought to thank God for perpetually. That he is not meager in his giving of mercy, but overly abundant in it. This is what heaven is full of, is mercy. So especially if you are a sinner who feels like you've, you've sinned a lot, guess what? God is wealthy in his ability to cover and pay for that sin. But actually, again, mercy isn't the motive. Mercy flows out of the motive, which is love. 
Love is very emphatic here because love is used both as a noun and a verb, right? The great love with which he's loved us. And then you also have that adjective great. The great love, which is a noun, with which he loved, which is a verb, us. So there's, there's no way. It might almost sound overboard, but Paul just wants to make this point that even the smallest child can grasp, God really, 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 really loves you. That's all he's trying to say. <laughs> when he uses love as a noun, love as a verb, adds the word great. Just God really, really, really does love us. That's why he did the things that he do- did and does the things that he does. Now, I know man- many of you are probably familiar with the Greek word for love in the noun. It's agape which if you've been here, you know, many times you'll hear this sermons about agape. And the verb is agapao, and they're, they're related, okay? Um, but those are the words here. Now, I think, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to give the same old spiel I give when I talk about agape and agape love uh, when I get to this passage. But actually, I, I realize I think sometimes preacher, preachers can overemphasize the meaning of these words as if in the Greek, they, had this, they have this super special meaning that unlocks the word love when you read it in the Bible. But to be honest, agape, that's a really generic, daily used word for love when you aren't talking about a specific kind of love. This is uh, just the kind of unconditional, normal word for love when you're, talking, when you're not talking about, say, brotherly love. Brotherly love would be uh, philos or phileo, um, so they had different words for love, but this was actually just the most broad, most generic, most normal word for when you're just talking about love, unconditional, just, just love. And, and I think if we overly emphasize what the Greek lexicons say and about agape and what the, the commentaries say, we'll miss the real point, right? This is the real point. No matter the language... God's love defines love. I mean, we all need to define love by God's nature and character, not by what the culture says, not by what I say, not, uh, but what the Bible says. So uh, in, in a way, I, I know that God is intending to communicate with human language and words and dictionaries, definitions of things. In a word, in a case such as love, we do better to let the whole Bible speak to what we mean by that love than to go to a lexicon and say, this is the way the Greeks used it. This is what the Hebrew mind would have thought. Like, the whole Bible is telling you what this word means. In other words, if you want to know what true love is, what it is and what it isn't, what it's like, what it's not like, you need to know who God is, which means you need to read your Bibles. Because this is what reveals who God is. Now, then having said that, I'm not going to do a complete Bible study on, the, on biblical love for you this morning. That, that will be a, very, that'd be a very, 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 very long Bible study. That's a li- lifelong endeavor. So I will leave that to you to understand the full breadth of this. But I will say this. <laughs> I've got to give you something. What the Bible considers, and you won't find this in a Greek lexicon, right? It's not going to have this definition of love in a Greek lexicon. That's why it's so almost like, well, why do we lean so heavily on that? We've got to be careful about that. We've got to use God's definition. In 1 John 4.10, G- 
John says, in this is love. And this is, again, not what you're going to read in any Greek lexicon. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So as far as the Bible is concerned, what is love? It's Jesus Christ dying on the cross on the behalf of sinners. That is love. That is the great love with which he has loved us. Now, maybe it doesn't surprise you that God's mercy flows out as an overflow of God's love. But you have to remember, this follows Paul saying, but God. Everything about God's salvation here, his motives, his his actions, his purpose, everything since it follows but God is to say that we wouldn't expect it. We shouldn't expect it. It should somewhat shock us. Well, God is love no matter what. We can't have the presumption. In other words, of course God should love me. I'm worthy of his love. I am so lovable. You see, if you think that way, then you're not understanding but God. There has to be a contrast, right? There's no contrast if I'm so good, so great. You wouldn't say, but God showed his love and his mercy towards me. They say, of course God showed his love and mercy towards me. Romans, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 is very clear that we aren't really that lovable. We aren't worthy of God's love. God doesn't have a reason to love us. God's grace is that he chooses to love us, even though we were enemies of God. I, I, I think, and if you look at 1 John 4 more, right after that, in this is love, he talks about, and so this is the way you should love each other. When we see a motivation of God's love, this is not just to make us feel you know, warm and squishy inside. It should. You should feel very, very uh, honored and, and, and almost, not ashamed, but, you know, but God means that I, I can't really fully understand why you do this for me, God. It's unexpected. But if we are now to love other people in the same way, I mean, doesn't that revolutionize and change how we think? Let's be honest. The people we're closest to in this room, they're probably in our minds, very likable. They have the same interests. Maybe they're in the same life stage. I would reckon that it's rare that anyone here would say that they chose to become close friends with someone that they find annoying and don't have anything in common with except being a Christian. And that's okay. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about how you choose your friends. But let's be thankful that God's love didn't work that way. He chose very messed up people to be his children. He chose even the ones that would seem to be least likely to be near to God, to be his friend. And maybe, just maybe, we need to be challenged sometimes to love those who are not exactly like me. We had a great discussion yesterday, actually, in the the men's breakfast about that very idea of, of loving people who are different than you. And there's a certain glory that God's, God gets because it doesn't get any different from God than me and, and you. And yet God chose to love us. So 
Um, today, I know it's, it's maybe awkward after I say it this way, because now when you go talk to someone, hey, how you doing? You know, the person would think, oh, I'm the most annoying person you know then. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I'm the least likable person. Don't take it that way. <laughs> Don't take it that way. But understand um, that if there's someone here you haven't met yet, but they've been coming to the church for like five, ten years, and you always see them, but you never send it. And I feel called out by this, too, because I've done the same thing. I've been trying to, to, to meet with people uh, here in the congregation that I see and have seen for years and years, but have never had just a really good conversation with. And it's been a blessing, and it's been almost shameful for me to have um, neglected and not um, made the opportunity to get to know some of you wonderful people. So you're missing out, I'll say it that way, if you don't get to know some of these people that you think are very different than you. And the truth of the matter is they're not. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus. Those are the most important things to have in common. And you have that in common with everyone here that says they're a Christian. So that is the motive of salvation. What are the activities of salvation? And because uh, I'm a pastor, I needed all of these to be the same, start with the same letter. So we got R, R, and R. So triple R here, all right? Um, God <laughs> revived us. He raised us. And then he um, reverences us, all right? Revive, raise and reverence. Verse, um, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, revived by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, is raised, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, reverenced uh, or gave us honor. That's what that means. In salvation, God revived us with him. When it says, even when we are dead and our trespasses and sin, we're understanding this is spiritual life. That we are being given spiritual life because we are spiritually dead, not physically dead here. No one here is physically dead. But in our trespasses and sin before Christians, we're spiritually dead. So this is talking about being made spiritually alive together with him. Meaning, when we believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of of our sins, we were at that moment made spiritually alive as surely and actually as Jesus' own body was gone from that empty tomb. As sure as that tomb was empty and Jesus was risen from the dead, so true it is, so, so too it is true that when you believed in him and your sins were forgiven, you were made spiritually alive unto God. To be made spiritually alive is to say that we have not had our sins held against us. That God now does not have a death sentence looming over our head that is eternal judgment and punishment, but instead a hope of eternal life. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, if you want to turn there, you can, but a very similar passage, almost the same words, but here you catch a little bit more of what he means by being made spiritually alive. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it's, uh, you have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2, 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You can imagine that being dead and your trespasses and sins is not so much that you're not walking around and making decisions, but you are as if on dead, death row, where you are doomed to die. It is sure that you're going to die. You've been found guilty to die, so you're as good as dead. It's like that kind of phrase. You're as good as dead. But in Christ, through faith in him, it is as if the, the warden receives the phone call and says, that says, so-and-so has been forgiven, found innocent of all their crimes. Let him, let her go. No longer are they under that specter, that, that ghost of death over their heads, but rather they are now free. And, and yes, it, you know, it takes a while to get literally out of the prison, if you want to extend the analogy, and, and, and walk out of that jail. But from the moment that that warden receives the phone call, they are innocent. Lay no hand on that person. You have been passed over from death the sureness of death to life. Now, I know it says there, it kind of interjects, by grace you have been saved, but like I said, we're going to get into that a little bit more next time we're together, together. But Paul wants to interject here to emphasize that in our salvation, God's mercy and love being poured, poured out on us is not something that we deserve or earn. It is a gift. The word for grace at its root means an unmerited gift, a gift given completely on the basis of the goodness and the desire of the one giving the gift. And so salvation is all of this kind of gift of God, this grace. We'll talk about it more next time. I don't mean to gloss over it. Um, and actually, I'll mention it again at the end of the sermon, um, but we will talk about that a little bit more. So the first R is that we are revived or made alive in Christ. Second R is that salvation, salvation God raised us with him. This is also referring not just to the time when we'll be resurrected and our bodies will be uh, brought up from the earth and reunited with our souls and, and all, all that sort of thing. This is, that is true. But this is not talking about that day of resurrection. Rather, this is being talked, uh, or this is referring to being raised up to a new life as Christians. Uh, Romans chapter 8, or 6, verse 8 through 12. Again, if you want to turn to that, uh, you can join me in that passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 through 12. This is what the, the raised life looks like. This is what a life raised with Christ looks like. Romans 6, 8 through 12. Now, if we have died with Christ, in other words, when we put faith and trust into him, it's like we are united with him in his death to sin. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, it showed that he had conquered sin. Why? Why would rising from the dead show that you conquered sin? Well, death is the consequence of sin. So if you raise from the dead, you have conquered sin. So the character of all those who placed their faith in Jesus is the same. You've died to sin, and you're raised up to walk now, dead to those things, alive to righteousness. When God saved us, his intention was to give us a whole new meaning and direction and purpose in life. I think one of the unfortunate side effects of living in a, in a kind of Christian culture um, here in America is that for a time at least, it's maybe a little less obvious how different a resurrected, raised from the dead, dead to sin kind of life is supposed to be from the world because the culture, and this is a good thing, generally agreed with what the raised with Christ kind of life should look like. But for better or worse, those days seem to be passing. But in a way, at least it should be more clear now the distinction between those who are dead in sin and those who are raised up with him. A raised life is different. Just as how could you not be different if you were to <laughs> rise up out of the grave? I mean, just I would expect someone to be changed by that and different. And so, too, it should be that the Christian that is raised with Jesus Christ, we have a new nature, new desires. We should stand out in some way to the way the culture is. That it should not be that everything we do is trying to fit in with everything the outside world does. And in a way, not to expect for them to act like we do, apart from this distinction. Have you been forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ? That's a, that's, a, that's a big deal right now because if we think we need to force other people to act like Christians with, apart from faith in Christ, we're doing them no favors either. So we must be different to the core, to the root, for the reason of Jesus Christ being the one who has raised us, who has made us different. The third R in salvation is that God reverences us with him. And that's a stretch, I get it, I know. I just wanted up those three R's really bad. But truly, truly, there is no greater honor than that God would seat us with Christ, the Son, in the heavenly places. It is the most revered position we could ever be in. It's the highest honor that a human can ever sit in. And yet every Christian, every Christian, Paul's not making a distinction between better Christians and worse Christians, he's saying all Christians will be seated in or with Christ as co-heirs, co-inheritors, co-rulers with Christ himself. I don't know what you think the highest position of honor would be. I don't know what you think would just... You know, you just wouldn't know what to do yourself if you found yourself on, you know, the stage of uh, the Emmys, I think, were just recently, I could care less, but um, like some award stage, you know, and just think of, of being in front of so many people. Or maybe it's the Olympics, 
and just receiving that honor and praise, even from the world, because every, everything's a world stage now. But all of it pales in comparison. All of it is, you, you should be just as, as, as proud of as a, as a child being able to finally get the spoon in their mouth. All of it is childishness compared to this honor, this glory of being co-heirs seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You don't deserve that. It doesn't even, it cheapens it to just say, oh, you don't deserve that. I mean, you don't deserve to even be in heaven. I mean, let me be a janitor. And that's what the the psalmist says. You know, I'd rather be a doorman in the house of God. But not just to be the janitor there or, or to just, you know, clean the toilets, but to be told, no, here, sit up here with Jesus. All of us will somehow fit there on the, on the stone. We'll all sit there. It's a little bit metaphorical. I don't think there's a gigantic billion-people-long chair you know, that we all are going to sit on. No, this is about an honor and a glory that we will possess with Christ. Now, we've covered it um, the essence of this. And, and this is something you don't quite catch in English. But uh, you see in all those verbs, very close by the verb with, right? So you have, um, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him. Um, that's a separate word in English. But in the Greek, actually, each one of those words has the word with built into the word as a prefix. So it's, um, um, we won't do a grammar lesson today. I, I like doing grammar lessons. We won't do it. But just understand in Greek, you can have a word and it's very easy just to stick a prefix in front of it. Okay. Um, um, so the word with in Greek is attached to each of these verbs, right? To, to um, made us alive, raise us up, and seat us. It's very clear and it's very intentional because he could have used other words. He could have used other words and the Greek word with. I mean, there is a Greek word for with. But he intentionally uses these three Greek words that have with built into it to say that <laughs> he wants us to be together. Us and God. He wants us to be together. He's doing all that he does in salvation to bring us along with him. It's not even just like he's doing stuff for us. He's doing stuff with us, together with us. Because when you think about it, this is the ultimate display of God's love. That, that who he is, what he does, where he is, he wants ultimately us to be with him, to, to bring us along with him. If God is love, there's no greater act of love than to what? Join himself, who he is as love, to us. There's no better way for God to love us, if God is love, than to unite himself with us. And each of those verbs has that uniting. This is with Christ. This is with me. We are together in this. What I do, you do. Where I go, you go. Where I am, you will be also. John 14. 
when we say, God loves you. This is what we mean. God's work in salvation, sanctification, glorification. Did you notice that? Talking about salvation, you know, being saved, forgiven our sin, talking about sanctification, being raised up to a new life, talking about glorification, the end of our life when we are with him, eternity, forever. God's work of salvation here, his activities is all for us with him. Not just for us for our own sakes, but for us with him because he is the highest virtue, value, good, love. So we have the motivation of salvation, love. The activities, the actions of salvation are uh, being revived, raised, and reverenced. And lastly, we have the purpose of salvation. And we call it the eternal purpose of salvation to display God's grace now and forever. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We've said this before. We need to say it every day to ourselves. Everything in this creation is about God. How could it not be about him? He is the very reason things exist. So how does everything not reflect on him, on his character and nature, even the existence of hell tells us something about God's holiness and his righteousness. It must exist. Everything that happens tells us something about who God is, even the trials and the difficulties, the disease and the disasters. But in salvation, God ordained somehow through the trials, through the sufferings, through the temptations, through the, the death and destruction and decay of this life, all of it will demonstrate the riches of his grace in us, through us, in kindness now and forever. Why add the word kindness to grace? I mean, grace, like we said, it already means getting better than you deserve. And we already talk about mercy and the riches of his mercy, but now we're talking about the measure riches of his grace and kindness. Why bring that up? I almost just glossed over that when I was doing this. Well, everyone knows what kindness is, but it's a little bit subtle. But kindness is, is doing an act of goodness that is perfect for the moment. Maybe you can think of it like Grace is a very broad, you know, big picture disposition and attitude of wanting to shower someone with good things. Think Christmas time. Every year I say at Christmas, we have too much stuff. We need to get rid of this. I mean, I grew up, I would get like one or two toys. Maybe we only get new toys if, if we get rid of some of the junk that's in the house. And I get very, I don't think it's Grinch-like. I'm just trying to be reasonable here. We got... We don't have enough space in the house, and they're spoiled and all this stuff. But you know what inevitably happens? Just, <laughs> I won't call it junk, but I mean, the, 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 the presents start piling under the tree. I, I want to show them a lot of love and grace. I, I don't know. Maybe we are spoiling the kids. We'll talk about that later. You can tell me, give me some, some counsel. But it, it happens. I mean, don't I want to just show them grace and love and kindness and just a general attitude? Even I kind of fight myself. I'm going to spoil them, blah, blah, blah. But 
I, I mean, maybe it needs to be tempered, but my, my heart is, I just want to do good, you know, to my kids and just, oh, fine, you can get that, you can get that, or, oh, I see this, oh, you'd, you know, she'd really love that, he'd really like that. And just, that's like Christmas time. That's grace. Kindness is more the doing of specific acts of good that are thoughtful and personal. So think, rather than Christmas, think of a coworker just having a really rough day and she spills something on the floor and just frustrated, you can tell, and you rush over and you, you, you start cleaning it up for them and you just see a moment where, where doing something good for them would just be so fitting. Would, would really serve and minister to that person in that moment. Of course, it's a gracious thing to do, but it's kind. It's specific. It's something that, that fits the moment. And in a way, we can have a general attitude of graciousness and miss out on the specific things that we can do and the specific moments we can let kind of pass by where you could really do good. If you're paying attention, you'd know this person's hurting this way. It'd be really kind if I gave a call or, you know, and so on. So kindness is, is different. It's, it's intentional and it's specific. And that is how God views each one of us. God has the time and the bandwidth to be kind to each of you in specific ways. He knows exactly what you need even before you ask. And God is full of that kind of grace that is also very personalized to you. That's what we mean by this kindness. So I kind of had a little bit of a discouraging week the past few weeks. And the Lord was very kind to bring people along that didn't even know it. They're just, we're just talking about stuff. And they would say something that was very specifically encouraging and that I needed to hear in that moment. Now, they didn't know that. They're just talking, you know, we're just chatting, but they would say something that very specifically and personally hit the note of what was bothering me, hit the, hit the issue. And it was just a kindness, of course, of God. I mean, that person was just being generally, you know, gracious and, and, and just talking about things. But I saw in it the specific kindness of God towards me, knowing exactly where I was kind of like uh, feeling, you know, whatever uh, about things and and just for someone to say like a very specific thing, like, oh, God, thank you for that. that. That was a kindness shown towards me in that moment. That's what we mean. God is rich in that kind of kindness. A phrase coming ages means the various times that were coming after Paul wrote these letters. You had also the post apolic apostolic age after the apostles all died. You have the church age, which is really what we are now in. We have the second coming age and the, the, the millennial age, and then, of course, eternity future. doesn't matter. Really, all this talking about is from this moment to eternity, God intends this purpose for salvation that our lives as Christians would be as vessels, as demonstrations, as trophies of God's bountiful, immeasurable, immeasurable, abundant grace. Everything that he does in our lives is intended to be a demonstration of how good he is to us and for us, even though we were sinners. That, that's, that's good news. 
I mean, what would you rather the purpose be if not the glory of God being shown in us and through us? I don't want to be God. So what's, you know, what, what else could be the purpose of this? God in me. And that's got to change me. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can struggle with this. The Bible is written and revealed to us to change us, change how we look at our life, the world, our circumstances, our time and money. I can sometimes feel a little overwhelmed keeping track of having a biblical view of this, 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 and this. Because, of course, we need to think about everything biblically. So I know that you're working on a lot of things in your life, and you're struggling with this sin and that sin, and, and, and I know that you're trying to let the Bible and the scriptures of God change us. But I think it's always helpful. Whenever you see like a purpose statement, like a big, big picture purpose statement in the Bible, we should stop for just a second. I know you've got a lot of things on your plate, even spiritually that you're dealing with and wrestling with and very specific struggles and sins that you're just trying to get to. But I think when we see like such a big, clear purpose statement like this, it would be good for all of us to stop and ask ourselves, okay, all right, is this my purpose statement? Is this something I am behind? Am I behind this purpose statement? Do I see this happening in my life? Do I want this to happen in my life? Am I acknowledging God's purpose for me? And that's something to leave you with now. Here's what God's stated purpose is, that he might show the measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Are you all in on that? Do you believe that? Is God doing that in your life? And if it's been a while since you thought about kind of God's overarching purpose, because we can get very much in the weeds about I need to wrestle with this specific sin and that specific sin, but perhaps this morning looking at the map of salvation might remind us of the glory of the purpose for which God has saved us. And maybe that uh, is just a good reminder. I know I need it too, to look at the big picture. You know, God is trying to demonstrate his grace towards me. And that, doesn't, that means I don't need to be perfect because grace isn't for perfect people. Then consider, pray. Now, it's also uh, pray about that. It's also clear that this is towards us in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian today, you don't, no. And you, don't, you haven't experienced these things we're talking about. But I hope that in hearing of God's love and what it did on our behalf and the purpose for which all things were made, that it might open your eyes. If you have any questions about what Jesus Christ has done and who God is, come talk to me or Pastor Chris or Bing or, 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 or whoever invited you to church and learn more, get more about what this God has done for you so that you might also have this hope and this promise and this testimony. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you again for your grace. Uh, just remind us again the height and depth of that love you have for us, the depth of our sin, the height, and the richness of your mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for that, and thank you for the reminder of that as we um, prepare our hearts for communion. I pray that it would be a special time where we can remember who you are and what you've done and where we can consider each other in love as well, how we can love others with the same love. So thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.